Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Erica. And I'm Steve. So friends, we're in the middle of a relatively new-ish series called Christianity 101, where we're looking at the very, very basics of the Christian belief system, what it means to be a Christian, how to become a Christian. We've talked about God, who is God, what is God. Uh, We've talked about faith and what that means. Last week, we looked at the creeds and what they have to say to us, how they inform us about our belief system, where they came from. Um, so, t- Steve, where are we going to take the conversation to today? Well, today, it, it seemed wise to us and to the Holy Spirit, um, whom we'll talk about later, I imagine, um, for us to spend a little bit talking about what, what's the Bible and how does that function in being a, a Christian or what Christian faith is about. It, probably people who have almost no connection to Christianity or awareness of it all, at least have some sense. Yeah, they're the people carrying a book around or who have some awareness of this thing called the Bible. Sometimes in good ways, that's good for us. And sometimes that's weaponized in ways that aren't very Mm -hmm. helpful. But man, are we associated with the Bible? Um, So probably it would be smart for us to talk about what is it? How did it come to be, at least in the view from 30,000 feet up? And yeah, how how does it speak to us? How does it... um, how does it have authority or what's it, what does it do for us? How, how do we see ourselves in relationship to the Bible? So that seems like a pretty broad area for us to spend some conversation in, right? Yeah. So like most faith traditions, there is some sort of holy book. You know, the, the Muslims and Islam have the Quran. The Jews have the Torah or the Tanakh. Um, the, I forget the Hindu holy books. Um, but so that's basically what our Bible is to us, right? That that's our holy book. Um, that's where we we kind of learn about our faith and yeah. our the history of our faith and the people that have passed the faith down through generations up through Jesus and the apostles. And, and, and I'm going to argue with you a little bit, Erica. Okay. I think it's I think it's holy books. Yeah. With it, okay. with an S, yes. right? And um, and I and I say that mostly because I like to make this distinction with my confirmation students that we don't have just one book; we have a collection of books that are bound together that makes one volume. Um, that you know, because I think it's a disservice to read the Bible as if one person wrote it and that mm-hmm. there was a cohesive thought from start to beginning, because. Instead, we have a collection of books written by many, many, many different authors for many different communities with many different purposes um, and that we can't read it all the same. Like Genesis, we can't read that the same way that we read the letter to James and we can't read the letter to Mm -hmm. James the same way that we even read the letter to the Romans, which we can't read the same as the Gospel of Matthew Yeah, because those are different genres. Um, so yeah, I think my big sticking point is that it's not a book. It is many, many, many different books. 
And I think that that's that's a really important thing to say at the outset, that while Mm -hmm. we can still end up landing with saying God's involved in both the inspiration of and the gathering and the collection of these works uh, as well, that's still through a variety of different authors, as well as, as you say, different styles, and that each of those brings a layer to it, that even when you're reading the same genre, say gospel, Mark tells stories differently than Matthew does, differently than John does, who's often sort of like breaks into poetry. Um, and my goodness, Luke wrote a musical. Um, that like the, even the, the way the authors speak is different. And you mm-hmm. need to learn their, their tone of voice, learn what they mean and when they, when they use words. Uh, and to know that there's going to be overlap, but maybe some differences and nuances in the way one writer speaks versus another. Mm-hmm. And that when we start with that vantage point, treating this as a collection, as a library of books or a, a, a compendium, an anthology of books and voices who then are singing in harmony and sometimes the tones seem dissonant and sometimes they're all singing a C major chord together, but seeing that variety and multiplicity, I think helps us to see the, the richness that also, I think frames from the beginning that we treat the Bible differently than say a cookbook. I mean, like, uh, you know, we have on our shelf, a handful of cookbooks and I treat it like there's one place I go to find the recipe for biscuits. And there's one place I go in that book to find the recipe for baked Alaska and whatever else. And it's tempting to treat the Bible like, oh, it's the same way. It's one book. And you, when you have this question, you go to that verse. When you find this question, you go to that book. Mm-hmm. Instead of there are going to be things that are talked about or discussed or raised in multiple places, sometimes from multiple perspectives and treated differently. So instead of like, well, treating it like a, it, it's, it's a problem solving book. I come with the question. I look up the right place and find the recipe for how to fix my life. It's it's it works differently because it's a collection of multiple books written over a long span of time. So where do we get this collection of books from? And Sarah, thank you for that. That's a good distinction. It's a volume of books, not just one book. So so where do all these books come from? You know, like you said, Sarah, multiple people wrote them over centuries, millennia. Um, you know, how did how did they come together? How do we kind of get to what we call the Bible now? So um, it used to be uh, how people would have books is that they were on scrolls. Mm -hmm. Um, So there, and these were really hard to come by, right? Because you had to make the the material of the scrolls and you had to handwrite everything. And so it was like very, very expensive. So way, way, way back when, you know, before Jesus, um, and then, you know, the couple of centuries after Jesus, it was very unlikely that each faith community would have all of the scrolls, right? Like you might not be able to afford all 66 scrolls or books that make up uh, what we now know as the, as the Bible. Um, so different, you know, different scrolls would be in higher demand. Um, different books, right? Like nearly every community, early Christian community would make sure that they had at least one gospel. Um, but there was a constantly like questioning like, oh, well, if we can only afford to buy one gospel, which one do we buy? Mm-hmm. Uh, which one is available? Um, you know, oh man, it would be really great if the place that I bought uh, scripture from, if they would have a two for one sale going on and then I could buy two gospels um and that is to say also that there were more than four gospels 
circulating at this time, right? Like there was the Gospel of James, which features, uh, is it the Gospel of James that features a talking cross? I think the Gospel of Peter has the talking cross bounding out of the the empty tomb. There's the Gospel of Thomas. There's also, I mean, there, there are things that were floating around that were stories or sayings of Jesus that the early church had to do some sifting through. Which things do we count as authoritative and which will we treat lovingly as fan fiction? Um, yeah. We've kind of talked about in, in this uh, in this podcast before. Yeah. Yeah. So at one of the councils where they were talking about the creeds and things, they were also talking about, well, which which gospels, which scripture do we hold authoritative? And there were certain criteria that they had to meet, right? Like they had to be written within a certain time frame, like so that they were only like one step removed from Jesus um, and uh, for the New Testament, rather mm-hmm. like, you know, um, they weren't expecting Genesis to be one step removed from Jesus, but like right. the New Testament. Um, and they also had to be used by many, many faith communities for it to be authoritative, right? Like they weren't going to say, oh, yeah, we're pretty sure that this one gospel was written directly by one of the apostles, but it turns out only one community in Rome is using it. Right. Uh, they're not going to pick that one. They're going to pick one that like lots of people were using. Um, so yeah, they had to meet these certain criteria. And then that's how they came up with a list of like, well, this is what is canon for the yep. New Testament um, is by basically those criteria. Yeah. Now, help me at that council, did they also talk about the Old Testament books? I think that was already set by the Jewish community, wasn't it? Kind of, I want to say. Like, there there seems to be pretty broad agreement in the early church. Again, because the the earliest Christian community is all Jewish ethnically and Mm -hmm. and, and by Mm -hmm. their faith tradition as well, that they would have inherited, you know, what they had already treated as the scriptures. But actually one of the things, if memory serves, that forced the the wider Christian church and, you know, like around the time of the Council of Nicaea, like early third century, to start saying what's our official canon is that there were other splinter groups that we would now call heretical groups um, who uh, were forming their own canon and didn't want to include the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament. There was a, a teacher by the name of Marcion and even arising in like the second century. Um, and the short version of Marcionism, if I remember correctly, to paint with a pretty broad brushstroke, is um, the God of the Old Testament is evil and made a physical world that, that was a big mistake or a terrible villainous thing to do, being spiritual and freed from physicality is the move you want to make and uh, Jesus came by some other better God to free us from the shackles of physicality and um, so he uh, uh, Marcion included as the list of books he thought were authoritative for his people and his um, uh, followers um, some of Paul's letters a pared down version of Luke and like that was it and explicitly none of the old testament hebrew scriptures and so the early church had to say no we're going to include all of what uh, our ancestors in the faith in the jewish faith have have considered their scriptures and so that was broadly seen in three categories the law or torah like you mentioned erica um, what we would call genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy the prophets and the writings um which would include things like uh you know proverbs and ecclesiastes things like that 
there were other books that had been written before Christianity that are that nobody was quite sure what to do with, like what we might now call the Apocrypha or the Deuterocanonical books, like mm-hmm. stories that were written, um, you know, during the, the period of the Maccabees and um, things that weren't written in Hebrew originally, um, but are Jewish faith writings, things like Sirach and Ecclesiasticus, other things like that, that were floating around that even the Jewish community wasn't exactly sure what to do with. Um, And of course, Judaism, since Christianity finally became its own separate animal, has had to have its its own other conversations about authoritative texts like the Targum and the um, Midrash and the Talmud. So there are ongoing rabbinical teachings that Judaism treats with a certain respect and authority that Christians might have a vague passing awareness of, but they, we don't get those in our Bible. So like, even, even how does Judaism settle what's authoritative has kind of changed over time. I was thinking specifically the Maccabees because, mm-hmm. you know, the whole holiday of Hanukkah is based around the story of the Maccabees. Yeah. And, and so that is, I, I don't know if that's part of the Jewish Torah, Tanakh, whatever name you want to give to the Jewish Bible, but it is part of you know like you said those apocryphal due to canonical books that say our catholic roman catholic brothers and sisters do place as part of their bible right and it it should we should probably say too that christians throughout the centuries have had different ways of handling this additional set of books even the title deuterocanonical is a fancy way of saying sort of second tier or second ring like it yeah it's in there we're not quite sure what to do with it. And uh, coming from the Protestant tradition, uh, I, I look back, our, our older brother in the faith, Martin Luther, he would say things like, they're fine, they're, they're acceptable to read and to learn the stories of, but he didn't treat them with the same authority that he would have mm-hmm. treated the other scriptures with. Um, so yeah, they're, 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 even, even as much as Christians want to assume, yeah, well, we're in favor of the Bible, we're pro-Bible. Well, exactly what does that mean is is a little mushier or, or fuzzier around the edges than, than we want to admit even with that. I've always kind of struggled with the fact that our our canon of what we, you know, hold authoritative for in the Bible is, is closed, mm-hmm. right? Like this is this is what we have. This is what is always going to be um, and it's not going to change. There's been a couple of attempts throughout the about throughout Christian history of trying to change the canon of the Bible, but it's usually to like remove a book. <laughs> like Martin Luther wanted to take out the letter to James because it made him uncomfortable and he didn't yeah. like it and he didn't know what to do with it. Um, but otherwise, like th- this is what we have, and even Martin Luther had to admit that with. James of like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to try to make my peace with it and or ignore it, but I can't remove it because it's part of the Holy Scriptures. Um, But I feel like by having the canon closed by saying we're not adding any more to the Bible says to me that we're kind of saying that God is done speaking. That's the challenge, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's true. I don't think God is done speaking or inspiring people to write good and holy things on behalf of God. So so I've always kind of struggled with the fact that it seems like that that we can't add anything to the Bible. But I know that would open up a whole nother can of worms of like, well, what would we include? And who <laughs> right. would get to decide that? Because like, 
that that's really hard. Like there's now 2000 years of religious writings that right. we would have to sift through. And some of it at the time probably seemed like it was very good and like, oh, yes, we really need to say this. But now does it have anything to say to us now? Right. You know, 500 years later or a thousand years later. Um, you know, I think some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s writings would be very good additions to the Bible. But does that have something to say to the entire church throughout the world? Right. Does it going to be relevant in 50 years? Who knows? And that gets it, as as you pointed out, Sarah, that when when the early-ish church was trying to wrestle with what things do we include, that that idea of the the broad inclusiveness, what, what sometimes gets called the Catholicity or universality of books was important, that it wasn't just, hey, our local preacher preaches really good sermon, put that in the Bible, but no, was there pretty broad acceptance of, yes, we all across all of our various communities have found this to be useful and helpful in this, this, this is God breathed, that that was a part of how the early church sifted and didn't just say, uh, well, one, one guy over here really likes this, you know, uh, story he wrote, can we put that in our Bible? But that, that breadth and the, a certain timelessness was a part of how the early church said, yeah, this needs to last. We'll need to hold on to this. But also to your point, because I think you make a a really good point that we, we are, we've chosen to set ourselves up with a certain set of problems by having a closed canon in that we're left saying, well, God hasn't done speaking, but, well, but what? I mean, but how, how do we talk about how God keeps speaking? And if we even, even just to stay in the ancient world of the first century, what do we do with the fact that there are other letters of Paul that we don't have in our Bible? And if they had been discussed, if, if somebody found one, what would we do? Like Paul makes it, there's a mention in the letter to the Colossians. Hey, if you get my letter to, that I wrote to the Laodiceans, make sure you read that one too. We don't have a copy of the letter to the Laodiceans. Um, so at, at some point, either it was lost forever and we got to live with, we don't have it. Or if somebody would discover a copy, what would we do? Would we all decide, okay, it comes from Paul, we should add it back in. I, I think one of the things we're going to have to live with is um, the, the, it's tempting to go, it's whatever's in the covers now, this is what the Bible is, this is the book. And it's like, it, it took a while to get there. And even that is sort of an incomplete kind of a, uh, picture. It's not everything that everybody in the first century ever said about Jesus. And even, uh, you know, John himself in the, in the fourth gospel at the end says, by the way, there's a whole bunch of other stories about Jesus that I haven't even told you. And if I wrote them all down, it'd fill all the books in all the world that the, the biblical writers themselves seem to understand they're giving us a partial picture. And I think that means part of what they're also saying is, the point of being a Christian is not to own a Bible or to arrive at a document that's the finished product. We're the finished product. I mean, I, I don't want to get all Mr. Holland's opacy on us, but like at the end of that movie, like he has to learn, like it's, it's, it wasn't about you writing the perfect symphony. It's the people that you taught were the, that was what you were supposed to be working on with your life. And that Christianity isn't in the end, a book club for people who all have read the same book, but people whose lives are being shaped in the likeness of the God we meet in Jesus and that means the scriptures are a part of giving that shape, but it's not just people who know the Bible well. There are lots of folks who are biblical scholars who do not have a living faith in Jesus, and um, that just just knowing or reading the Bible does not make one a, mm -hmm. a, a Christian. And vice versa, you can learn a lot from people who study the Bible but aren't Christian as well because they have some insights to bring and maybe don't have some of the baggage that church folk sometimes bring along with them. 
So I, I'm, I'm going to come back then to a, a maybe a circle back around to a counterpoint to Sarah's point earlier that we have um, a whole collection of books, an anthology that we call the Bible or the scriptures. And at the same time, Christians have classically said that somehow God's behind these scriptures too. And that while there's not one human author, Christians have tended to take, say, have some way of talking about that God's involved in these writings in a way that the half-formed tweet that somebody might write, uh, you know, late in the day uh, and then send is not. I mean, like, everybody thinks the things that they write or think or post are smart or right, but I hope none of us are like, yeah, this one came from God. How, how, how do we talk about the difference between the witty banter I might fire off on social media, thinking it's delightful, um, and what we treat as authoritative in the scriptures and how God's a part of that? Because that, that seems to be an important part of the conversation. So unlike other holy books where God has dictated what is that, what exactly has, has been written down or, or some sort of scroll or golden plates have been presented <laughs> coming down from God or an angel or something. Um, it's my belief, my understanding, and I think the understanding of most Christians, though some might take this a little bit further, that scripture is inspired by God, but not written by God. Um, and, and that kind of sounds a little like, but, but how is that possible? <laughs> it's, it's not so much that God like is whispering in the ear of Paul or the gospel writers or the authors of the old Testament saying, okay, this is what I want you to record. But, you know, God is, you know, inspiring them to write things down. Cause even Paul admits at certain points, he's like, you know, this is from me. Right. This is from God. Right. Like, let's, let's be clear here. Like, this is for me. I think it's from God. Right. But I can tell you, it's definitely what my thoughts are. Um, and, and so that's, it, it's not God actually writing it down or passing yeah. it down through golden plates or something like that. Um, but God is involved in the writing of scripture. I think that's a really, really important point because sometimes, and, and with the best of intentions, I'm sure, but sometimes I have heard, I bet you have two religious voices that sort of treat it like, um, Treating the Bible as authoritative means like wherever the Bible mentions something, this is what you have to do. And it speaks as the only voice you should consider mm-hmm. on things when, like you point out, sometimes the voice of Scripture itself, Paul, you know, in the New Testament will say things like on this question, here's my opinion, but I don't have a command from Jesus on this. So this is me kind of spitballing here. And deliberately, Paul seems to be undercutting his authority, saying like, like, like LeVar Burton and reading Rainbow, but you don't have to take my word for it. Sort of like, a, here's me thinking, um, and here's my immediate response. But clearly, Paul even seems to be thinking, in this context with the data you've given me, here's how I'd respond. But almost saying, but I'm not trying to say this is every time, every circumstance. Mm-hmm. And we can certainly take uh, guidance or application from those things. But to take Paul seriously on his own terms means treating him as saying he's not saying that every circumstance will always lead to the conclusion I'm coming to right now. That seems an important, like to take the Bible seriously means when even the Bible puts limits on its own authority to treat that seriously and go, okay, Paul intends to put limits or guardrails on how we use his words here. 
it probably also, I appreciate the way you, you talked about that God being involved in the process, Erica, because again, I think sometimes we imagine that for each individual book, it was like written all as one event. I mean, like we might all grant, yes, these books were uh, written over different times, but surely it was written just all at once rather than like, you know, when you, when you get books like the, the history telling stories, the Kings and Chronicles and things like that, they even admit like this was compiled over a long time. You can't have one human author writing stories of hundreds of years, clearly. And they those, those writers will say things like, I've consulted the annals of the books of the records of the kings of Israel and Judah. Like th- those works aren't just writing, but they're editing and compiling and researching so that like what we have isn't just somebody sat down with a, you know, a quill and a scroll and, you know, produced the book of Ruth at the end. But a lot of these were first oral stories that were told around a campfire and then at some point were written down and maybe there's multiple copies or multiple versions that then you have to get brought together that means the process takes a whole lot more to become soup than just i sit down and scribble something off and part of talking about inspiration means god being involved in that whole process not just the well only the final person who wrote it all down or only the first person to ever write Mm -hmm. it down but somehow in that whole process god's in the mix even for all the messy parts of that process. I look at like Luke's gospel and he talks mm-hmm. about investigate. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus. Mm-hmm. At least not one of the 12. Yeah. Not one of the original 12, right? You know, So, and he taught, he opens up his letter of saying very much, I have researched this. I have studied this. I have talked to people. I have looked at the other, you know, gospel accounts that are out there, whatever might've been available to him. And, uh, you know, um, and he wanted to write everything in an orderly account for, you know, his friend, uh, Thanophilus, you know, so yeah, not, I don't think any of our books of scripture were written at the moment as things were happening. Right. Right. And acknowledging that I think is important. That also, I think changes or reframes maybe how we treat these books as authoritative for us, that even the writers themselves in most cases didn't see themselves as, um, uh, I, I, I don't know, like as, as certainly not as like automatons or zombies, like just dictating what a voice said, um, but also sort of, I, I guess, saw themselves as writing things that, that shaped people, but, but not necessarily like writing. And now I'm giving you, um, I don't know, ironclad rules o- other than like actual commandments, you know, like most of the rest of the Bible is more like, here's a story of how God showed up in somebody's life. I think it's important you know that story, but not necessarily that you have to copy what happens in that story. There was a, an experiment that I think I either experienced or at least read about, but it was a New Testament professor trying to illustrate to his or her students um, the difficulty of reporting something 50 years removed, mm. um, which was the professor came into class, like did a bunch of stuff at the, at, in the front of the class, but class hadn't actually started. And then like taught for like 10 or so minutes and then told everybody to get out a piece of paper and a pen, pop quiz. They had to write everything down that she or he just did since walking in the door. And that was like only 10 or 15 minutes removed, but it helped illustrate that 
that that being removed from something, even if it's just 10 minutes, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that there's like 50 people all writing the same thing, but none of it's going to be identical because some people aren't going to notice that the professor took water out of the, her his or her bag, took a drink, and then put it back in the bag. Um, whereas other people noticed it and was all like, oh, yes, that was very important. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, like, it's, I think, challenging to record something so many years later, but it also helps illustrate or lift up those things that are important versus the things that weren't important. Like, do we really need to know what Jesus's morning routine was? No. Right, right. I, I think that's such a great point that part of the work of if you're if your job is to transcribe something you just saw, there's already a level of editorial, you know, like deciding what was important enough to record. So maybe the student thinks the clearly the professor doesn't want me to write down they got water out of their bag. That's not important. It's only what they said. And others would be like, no, I need to meticulously write down. They got out the water and they twisted the cap three times. And to have multiple voices then helps you get a fuller picture, maybe. Um, so it's not just uh, an illustration of how hard it is to write something after some time, but also the difficult work of deciding what was important and for what reason. The flip side of that, I guess, is once you have people who know something is important and needs to be preserved, we do have pretty good evidence that um, scribes and copyists who, once they understood the scriptures were something to be held on to, did a really good job, by and large, of passing on what they had been handed on. Like, um, uh, oh, about, a, what, a, a hundred years ago or, or a little more, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in um, a, a cave outside of Qumran, and we found copies of the book of Isaiah that were a thousand years earlier than any copies we'd had, you know, written in Hebrew, they found some amazingly close copies where, like, things had, re- there hadn't been a lot of editorializing or changes or, or, now, that seems to me to say that once the ancient people of God, say the ancient, uh, you know, Jewish people decided the the Torah, we need to preserve this and committed, we're going to copy it letter for letter, word for word, that happened. Um, and there are, you know, a handful of places where you can see variants or differences and things. But on the whole, you don't have radically different endings to the story of Moses. You don't have radically, you don't have like, I don't really like how what happens to King David. I'm going to come up with a different ending. You have a consistency there that people have kept coming back to these stories and these words and these scriptures now for a very, very long time without, by and large, um, going off into fanciful fan fiction. Um, and I think that's that's an important piece of this too, that we're holding on to uh, an ongoing story that's been told by a lot of people over a very, very, very long time who keep coming back to these stories and these retellings. Um, and that, that's a part of the history and the legacy of what we have in our hands or in, in our, our Bible covers too now. So these stories have been told for a long, long time. Um, but we also know that these stories were not told in English. Right, right. Um, so, you know, um, scripture was written in three different languages. At least. Major- <laughs> at least three different languages. Uh, the majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The majority of the Greek Testament was written in Greek. And then there's some Arabic, um, Aramaic kind of thrown in there. Arabic, um, at least in the New Testament, there might even be some thrown, I think, into the Old Testament as well. Um, so how do we, because there, there are other faith traditions, uh, I'm thinking of, of Islam in particular, where a Quran written in anything but Arabic is not, no longer a holy text. 
Right. It doesn't have it, it in traditional Muslim teaching. A translation is it doesn't have the weight or authority of the Quran because something is lost in the translation. And there's a piece of me that can totally sympathize with that choice, because mm-hmm. uh, as someone who struggles with the differences across English translations or, you know, as someone who even had just like a basic understanding of New Testament Greek and can see how sometimes a passage has a real different feel in another language, bringing it into English, I can get it like and we end up having all sorts of fights over translations um, that you you avoid if you say only one translation, only one language is the correct one. Mm-hmm. But that 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 also then limits that you are only saying this is uh, our faith is only for people who can speak one language. And the the Christian community seems to have decided early on it was intentionally and they were convinced by God's choice, multicultural, multi-ethnic, different language, different backgrounds. And that the news of Jesus was for everybody, not that you have to speak the one language that the, you know, other people spoke. Yeah, I think for me, I'm I'm really, really thankful that we can translate our Bibles into different languages, uh, mostly because I'm terrible with languages <laughs> that is not English. And even English, I can argue probably that I'm not the best at it. But uh, like, I remember learning about the early days of the Reformation, where the, Ro- the Roman Catholic Church was very much the Bible is in Latin because they had translated everything into Latin and most of the priests knew Latin and the mass was conducted in Latin. And most people didn't really know what the Bible was about. Mm -hmm. And that just gives all sorts of room for religious and spiritual abuse which happened unfortunately during that time, which is why the Reformation was needed. But I am glad that I, as a pastor, can read the Bible and the people in my congregation can read the Bible for themselves. And I would add with that thought then that there is something um, not to be ashamed of, but maybe to be to see the positive in, in the availability of multiple, even English translations that each try and get at some shade of meaning and uh, that it might be helpful to have multiple voices. Again, I, I, I know that's not every Christian's position. There are, there are Christians in the culture in which we live who swear up and down that only the 1611 King James version is authoritative. And you've probably seen as well that that uh, social media post going around where the person says only the King James Bible, because it was written by Jesus, the greatest American who ever lived. And it's like every part of that sentence is wrong. Jesus wrote none of the Bible wasn't American and had nothing to do with the translation that we call the King James Bible. Um, but like it's, it's it, again it's tempting to think there's only one translation that's right and here's the one and it happened 400 years ago and then you have to invent a doctrine of and god preserve the translator's work when you know you've got people who are trying their best and who are not trying to be sloppy but coming to different conclusions on how you translate something how you whether we should be precisely word for word even when that violates the spirit of what was written or what, how idiomatic should we be? How important is it to speak in the colloquial language of the, the people you're writing to? Um, and all those are, are choices that a translator makes. And I, I guess 
for me, where I, where I land on that, at least, is like whatever it means to treat the Bible as authoritative has to be able to be communicated across different translations so that it's not like this exact word is what God spoke, but more like the idea that's behind this is, is what God has to communicate. And we may need to find different ways to express that um, in different times and circumstances. And that may mean a translation that's great now, 100 years from now, we may have to find are there places where the wording where, where contemporary English has changed enough that we need to, to shift how things are translated? Or oh, like the King James, and correct me if I'm wrong here, was a translation of a translation, correct? Yes. There's, I think there was definitely some of the, the Latin Vulgate that was in behind the scenes. There were some use of Greek manuscripts, but even since 1611, biblical scholars have found a lot, uh, certainly a lot more, and they would say a more reliable, even older transcript, like in you know, a translation, yeah. co- you know, copies from manuscripts, so that more recent translations aren't just, hey, let's let's make it catchier or more contemporary, but hey, we think we have better, you know, earlier copies to go from that instead of being 800 years old are 400 years old. Wow, well, that's pretty old. Mm-hmm. That that gets you closer to what was maybe originally written, um, and that those kind of choices are part of how translators work too. I remember when I was in seminary and taking Hebrew, there was like two main options of a, of a, (laughs) like a lexicon for Hebrew. And my professor's like, do not get this one. I forget the name of it or whatever it was, because it was that outdated kind of, we've gotten more information. Mm -hmm. We have a better understanding of the Hebrew. So don't use this one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it just, I find it interesting. And I tend, I know in my own research, uh, whether I'm leading a Bible study or even in sermon prep, um, at times I will go to different English translations because I'm not good at Greek or Hebrew. I took them in seminary, learned it for the test, forgot <laughs> most of it. <laughs> so, but I will go to the different English translations and paraphrases to, to get a fuller idea of what is being said there rather than just sticking to the the new uh, revised standard, which is typically what I preach from. Yeah. Yeah. I have such a love hate relationship with paraphrases of the Bible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it, it's one of those things. And I'm talking specifically about the message because yeah. I think that that is the one that we all see all the mm-hmm. time. Like I hate that it's often used as if it's a translation. Yeah. And I think that that's what I really dislike about it. But that being said, I also really like being able to like compare it to the translations because it often gets me to think about whatever section of the Bible we're reading differently. Like it usually comes at it from a different angle than what I was thinking um, or looking at. And so, so in that way, I really do like it. I also like just the practice of paraphrasing the Bible myself, uh, especially if I feel like, oh, I've read this text a million times. How am I going to preach on it by, you know, having the discipline of, oh, I'm going to paraphrase it myself. That's probably not going to actually show up in a worship service at all ever. But at least for me, it'll then Mm -hmm. get my brain to think about the text differently. So yeah, I have a, I have a love hate relationship with paraphrasing the Bible. I do too, for the same exact reasons there. I know Peterson was a great scholar in both Greek and Hebrew, but yeah, it, it's for all those same reasons. Like it, but there are certain verses like out of John's prologue where, you know, the word put on skin and moved into the neighborhood. Right. There's like, something beautiful about that. I, yeah. I love that idea. 
um, versus how you read it in any other translation or paraphrase. Um, but yeah. I, th I think that gets at an important piece about how we think about how the Bible is used or how it speaks or how it has authority. And that I, again, I, th I think it's different than just here's a collection of information that you can master and memorize. I mean, like there, there are some texts that are like that, that you can memorize the periodic table. My son right now is, is going through having to memorize all the states and their capitals in, in social studies. Like that's a fixed set and it will never change his life. It's just these are facts you need to memorize. And you can be the master of that and take a quiz and, and, and you know it for the test. But it seems to me like um, Christianity, and I think, I think uh, in, this is something we have in common with the ancient uh, uh, ancestors in, in ancient Israel and Judah and in, in Judaism as well, has tended to see the, the power or authority of scripture, not only, and here's a record of stuff that happened, but how it shapes us, how it affects, how, how it hits us, how it makes us into a certain kind of people shaped by this particular God and these particular stories. Um, so that like, like you say about the way Peterson can translate uh, words we've heard before in, in old stodgy language of the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but miss the way that's supposed to have punch to us. Sometimes what we need is the word to have that, that impact that hits us, that, that, that shapes us in a certain way. And that that's a part of how the Bible is authoritative, that it's, we, we, to be a Christian in some senses to say, I will let these stories shape me to become a certain kind of person or, or a person who lives their life in this certain trajectory. And that's different than knowledge I can master or memorize. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot more that could be said about the scriptures. And maybe it feels like once again, all we've done is muddy the waters. So good job for us making things more complicated. <laughs> I, I guess though, I feel like that, that, is is by itself an important job that needs to be done that every so often it's worth remembering yeah we we carry it around in one set of covers but it's an anthology of books and we treat it like it's the bible like it was all written at once but it was multiple authors and god's been involved in that whole process and that it's not just about memorizing the stuff between the covers but about the, the way god continues to speak and shape us in the encounter through all that not to sound all like carl bart but in the encounter, that's that's an important piece of what happens. That we aren't just people who own Bibles, but people who let the word speak and shape us in in the process. And sometimes it feels more like Jacob wrestling the angel than it does, you know, memorizing, um, you know, a, a, a list of words or names. But that it's that wrestling that that's important. That's part of how God continues to to get divine hands on us. Because I think we can all agree, you know, the Bible is Scripture is living. It's not like you said earlier, Steve, it's not just something that you just memorize and then you just stick it in the back of your head and like, it's there, like it's alive and active and living. And mm -hmm. the more time we spend with it, the more we have to wrestle with it, the more we get out of it. Yeah. Um, you can read the same passage a hundred times, but depending on, you know, where you are in life and what's going on around you, it might hit you differently yeah. on that hundred first time than it did the first hundred times that you read yeah. it. And maybe, and this is not intended to be the perfect segue to where we want to go next time, but th it seems wise that uh, other other older voices in the faith have pointed out that it's, it's appropriate to call the scriptures the word of God, but even before that, the Bible itself calls Jesus the word of God, mm -hmm. and 
uh, our older brother in the faith, Martin Luther, used to say the scriptures are the cradle in which the Christ child is laid. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that idea that the point of the Bible isn't to have a Bible, but it brings us into connection with Jesus, who is at the center of this story. At least Christians are convinced that the, the story turns on and is centered in who Jesus is, who is alive and well, and um, who continues to speak and all that, that whatever we, whatever we say or think about the Bible has to then point us back to the, the person of Jesus in whom we come to meet God in a human life. Um, and that then says our, our conversation about the Bible can't be the end of our series on Christianity 101. We have to move to talk about who is this Jesus that we're not only have stories about in the Bible, but that we're convinced is somehow what everything points to. So what do you say we go there next time? <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds like a good plan. Fair enough, then. Um, Thanks for being with us today as we muddied the waters about scripture, but join us next time for more conversation about Christianity 101 here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.